Sorry about that. Get my slides up on the screen there. Um, Today we're going to jump into the book of Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew in our kingdom series. Uh, We have Bibles on the back table if you want one of those. I've also got our printouts of the book of Matthew on the back table there if you wanted to grab one of those. Uh, That's the full text of Matthew. Everyone who was here last week who wanted one is welcome to take one, and I've printed two or three extras. So if you weren't here last week and you didn't want one, you can still grab one. So there's one of those. We also have a, an event put up on the Version Bible app. And I'm also going to have the text of Scripture on the screen. So you're going to have like 12 different ways to engage with Scripture today, which always makes me happy. Why don't we go to, to God in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your written word. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to dive into it, to learn from it, to understand, to grow as Christians. God, I just ask that you would be with every single person here in this room, that you would help them to engage with your word, to learn from your word, to grow from your word. God, I ask that you would be with me, that you would help to make my words clear and concise so that the message of your word is clearly transmitted to my hearers. And most of all, we thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And the church said, all right. Has anybody ever heard the phrase, famous last words? Famous last words. I was... uh, my favorite uh, famous last word story, there was, there was a, a couple, an older couple, and they were in, in therapy, th- couples therapy, because their marriage was kind of on a little bit of rocky ground. And, and the, the wife was saying to the husband there in therapy, she says, you just don't understand me. You don't ever listen. You don't ever pay attention to my wants and my needs. You never buy me flowers. And the therapist says to the husband, he says, you know, your wife makes a good point. Why don't you go get your wife Flowers. What's your, what's your wife's favorite flower? You should go buy her, her favorite flower. And the husband stops and thinks for a minute and he says, I think it's Pillsbury. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I want to do today is I want to look at the famous last words of the Old Testament, of the Bible, before Jesus comes. And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your app, Um, I would love if you would turn to the book of Matthew, and then I want you to go about two pages back into the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to speak to the Israelites before about five, four or five hundred years of silence. Malachi wrote, uh, after the Israelites had been taken away into captivity and then come back, and Malachi was one of the last excuse me, the last prophet to speak to the Israelites before Jesus came. It's also the last book in the Old Testament. So take a look at Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 7. Malachi 1.7, he says, You are offering improper sacrifices on my altar. Yet you ask, how have we offended you? By treating the table of the Lord as if it's no importance. He says, for when you offer blind animals as a sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you offer the lame and sick, is that not wrong as well? Indeed, try offering them to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or show you favor? So God is upset with the disobedience of the Israelites. 
He's making this point to them that they are not being obedient. They are not doing what they are supposed to. And so through Malachi, he says, you guys are barely being obedient. You're bringing your sacrifices, but you're bringing the sick ones and the lame ones and the weak ones. You're, you're just being barely obedient. Try doing that to the governor and see what he would say to you. Try bringing those kinds of sacrifices to the governor. And so in verse 10, he says, I wish that one of you would close the temple doors so that you no longer would light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will no longer accept an offering from you. So they're kind of just going through the motions is what they're doing. And what Malachi is calling the Israelites to is a life of obedience. Is don't just bring the smallest, the least, the worst of your sacrifices. No, I command you to bring me the best. He's calling them to a life of radical obedience. You would never treat your earthly kings with this much disrespect. You would never treat your governor this way. And look at verse 14. He says, There will be harsh condemnation for the hypocrite who has a valuable male animal in his flock, but vows and sacrifices something inferior to the Lord. For I, and this is getting into our theme in Matthew, for I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is awesome among the nations. So God is setting himself up as king and saying, you need to treat me like I'm a king. And then we get into chapter 3, and look at what he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi, God speaks through Malachi and says, I'm about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant who you long for is certainly coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So we get a little bit of twist in the story. God says, not only am I the king, but I'm going to come back, and I'm going to send my messenger before you. I'm going to send somebody to pave the way for my coming. And then you get to the very end. These are the famous last words of the Old Testament. All the way in the end, chapter 4, verse 5. God says, look, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. He will encourage fathers to their children to return to me so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. That's the last thing God ever said to the Israelites for about four or 500 years. Now, was God completely absent? I don't think so. Was he probably still there involved in the lives of the people who were faithful, the individual people? Probably. But as far as speaking to the Israelites, the corporate nation of Israel through scripture, that was the last thing he ever said. And then radio silence for about four or 500 years. The last thing he said was, I'm coming back. And I'm going to send Elijah to prepare the way for me. Remember, Elijah was the prophet back in 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. Elijah was the prophet who, he never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. Whirlwind. That's 2 Kings 2.11. And then you get to the end of Malachi and you turn the page into Matthew. You read about this king who's descended from David. You read about how he is set in opposition to the earthly kings, the same people that God was upset with in Malachi. 
And you get to chapter 3 and you get introduced to this fellow named John. So I'd love if you'd open up to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For he is the one about whom the prophet Isaiah had spoken. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. The people from Jerusalem, as well as all Judea and the region around the Jordan, were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. If you're like me, maybe you are, maybe you're not, my first thought when I read that is, who exactly was this John guy, and why was he out there dunking people in the river? I think we need to take a, take a second and step back and look at who John really was. See, John was this guy. He had a very large following. He, had, there was, he was a big deal. He had a lot of people following him before Jesus began his ministry. He was the kind of person that even if you weren't a Christian, even if you weren't a follower of Jesus, you knew who John was. You had at least heard about him. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is the way that Matthew describes John. In chapter 3, verse 4, let's go back. It says, Now John wore clothing made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Okay, so to you and I, that's just weird, right? Guy wandering around in the wilderness wearing hairy clothes and a camel's belt and eating bugs. If you guys have been watching The Chosen with us, there's, a, there's parts in there where they talk about John the Baptist and somebody calls him creepy bug-eating John. But it's on purpose. And as weird and as strange as it sounds to us, Matthew's original audience would have instantly clicked with them. There's an account in 2 Kings where King Ahab is injured, he's like broken his leg or something, and he wants to know if he's going to survive. And so he goes and he sends his messengers out to try and find out if he's going to live or die from this injury. And he sends his messengers not to the priests, not to the prophets, but to Baal, the idol, the Canaanite idol. He says, go send somebody to Baal and ask if I'm going to live or not. This is in 2 Kings chapter 1. Well, Elijah, the prophet, gets wind of this, and he goes over, and he finds those messengers, and he says, yeah, you're going to die, because you sought after Baal and not the Lord. So the messengers go back to Ahab, and they're like, yeah, this guy came up to us and, and told us that we should tell you that you should stop following after idols, and you should seek after the Lord instead, and oh, by the way, you're going to die from your injuries. King Ahab's probably pretty upset. He says, who was this guy? What did he look like? Tell me who it was. And they said, they replied, he was a hairy man and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, ha, he's Elijah the Thisbite. So now, with that knowledge, all of a sudden, you're reading Matthew and you find out about this John guy who's wandering around wearing a, a hairy outfit and a belt around his waist. And you remember what Malachi said, the last thing God said before canon of scripture closed and you start wondering wait a minute could this be could this be the, the Elijah 
And, and what's fascinating about it is that here in Matthew 3, it's just a subtle little hint that gets you thinking. Matthew's original readers probably would have stopped and went, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, I wonder. But then later on in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually doubles down and makes it blatantly clear. This is Matthew eleven thirteen. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John appeared. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So Jesus makes it pretty clear. Now, here's the deal. Matthew's making it pretty clear that John and Elijah have some sort of a connection. And I, if you honestly want me to tell you what exactly that means, I have no idea. It wasn't literally Elijah. His name was John. But at the bare minimum, I can tell you that Matthew's making it very clear that the last words of Malachi, I will send Elijah to you and prepare the way for me. And then John shows up dressed like Elijah, being a prophet like Elijah. And then Jesus comes up and says, yeah, that's Elijah. And you're like, oh, oh okay, I guess. I don't understand it. So I... I if you want to know the, the actual logistics of what that means, whether it's the power and spirit of Elijah or if it's a metaphorical thing, I don't know. But at the very least, I can tell you there's a connection there. Let me tell you another thing about John. John was, was doing this thing called baptizing, immersing. And to you and I, that's like, okay, we do that all the time. We have a, we have a tub, we do that. But think about it. All through the Old Testament, they never talk about baptizing. That's not a thing that people did. So do you ever wonder, like, where did John come up with this? The Jews had a thing which developed about 200 years before Jesus called a mikvah. It was this, it was this way of becoming ritually cleansed. It's not in the Old Testament. It's something they were practicing. So basically, if you touched a dead body or if you ate some unclean food or you did something that made you unclean, you would go to the mikvah and you would go down and you would immerse yourself. And they started practicing this thing where you would be immersed and cleansed. And it was also used by Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. That's one of the things you did. If you were a male, you would get circumcised and you would go take a dip in the mikvah. What John was doing was Similar, but not exactly the same. So first of all, the thing that John was doing that was unique was this was a one-time event. So the Jewish mikvah, that was something that you would do over and over and over again. Every time you did something unclean, you would take a trip down to the temple or to the synagogue. They'd have a little step. It, it looked like, uh, honestly, like if you just dug a hole into the ground with some steps leading down to it to water. You would just walk down in the thing and you would cleanse yourself. That's not what John's talking about here. He's not talking about a ritual cleansing, something you do over and over again. He's talking about a baptism of repentance. That means you're going one way and you are converting, you are repenting another direction. So it's probably closer to the, the thing that the Gentiles would do. So with that in mind... If he is equating baptism with conversion, let's read chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but 
When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit that proves your repentance. How do you think those uppity-up religious leaders felt when John told them that they needed to repent and change their ways and convert? They're like, we're the... We're the religious leaders. We're the, we're the ones who know scripture. We're the ones who are, you know, the top level. Why do we need to convert? And John's telling them, yes, even you, the smartest, wisest Bible people who know the Bible backwards and forward, even you need to change. Even you need to repent. And the other thing that's, that's fascinating about John's baptism compared to the mikvah is that John's baptism was passive. See, the the mikvah thing, the ritual cleansing, that was something you did to yourself. You didn't need a rabbi. You didn't need a priest. You could just show up, walk down in the water, and dunk yourself. It was something that you did to cleanse yourself. John specifically tells his people, you need to be baptized. You can't baptize yourself. It's something that is done to you. Let's read Matthew 3.13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? So Jesus replied to him, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. So Jesus insisted on being baptized. So think about it. With the way that the immersion, mikvah, pseudo-semi-baptism process the Jews were doing in the day, by those rules, by those standards... Jesus could have just walked in the river and dunked himself, and none of the Pharisees would have cared. None of the Sadducees would have cared. It would have been considered A-OK. But Jesus insisted. No, no, no. This baptism doesn't work that way. Baptism is something that is done to you. Which, by the way, if anybody ever tells you that baptism is a work that you do to earn your salvation, they don't understand how it works. Because baptism is not something you do, it's something that is done to you. And so what Jesus is displaying here, in Matthew 3, in the theme of kingdom, he's displaying radical obedience. Radical obedience means being obedient even though you clearly don't need to. Jesus was the last person who needed to be baptized, and yet he did it. That's, that's the kind of obedience, that's like if you're the police officer and you know you can speed because you're the one who enforces the speed limit, but you're still obedient because that's what you should do. Radical obedience. He had absolutely nothing he needed to change. He didn't have anything he needed to repent for, but he was radically obedient. And then we get into verse, excuse me, chapter 4. 
And it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice two things about that verse. Jesus was led by the Spirit, but was tempted by the devil. Because God, excuse me, God does not tempt us. James makes that clear in James 1.13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't allow you to be tempted. That doesn't mean that God doesn't lead you into situations in which you might be tempted. In fact, the opposite is true. In James, if you back up a couple verses, he says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. In other words, in the words of John, if you're going to produce fruit worthy of repentance in keeping with repentance, then the testing of the, your faith, the trials that you go through, that's what makes your faith Walk in the walk and not just talk in the talk. So Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's put in a place where he can be tempted as an act of radical obedience. And, and Satan gives Jesus three tests. I want to just go ahead and read uh, verses 3 through 10 here. It says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him on the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and with their hands, they will lift you up. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, once again, it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you throw yourself down to the ground and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began ministering to his needs. I've heard a lot of people talk about those three different testings or temptings. And, and, and they'll say, you know, these are the three different ways in which Satan tests you. But, you know, when I read that, I see the same testing in three different ways. I see all three of those are a testing of Jesus to display his power and authority. And each and every time, Jesus rejects power and authority. Command these stones to become bread. He's tempting Jesus to use his power and authority for his own gain. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Even though I can summon food on a whim, I'm not going to take on that power. Throw yourself off the temple. He's saying, display your power and authority over death. Which, ironically, is what Jesus does at the end. But now is not the time and place. And he says, no, I'm not going to abuse that power. See, all the kingdoms of the world, I will give them to you if you just bow down to me. He's testing Jesus with earthly power. We talked last week about spiritual warfare. 
about the ways in which Satan tempts us, the ways in which he tests us and attacks us. And one of the ways he does that is by trying to get us to take on authority, to take on power. And Jesus sets the example for us that no, that's not the way we should live. Philippians 2, Paul says, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Radical obedience is submitting and repenting even when you feel like you don't need to. Radical obedience is rejecting power and authority and living a life of humble submission. And then we get into verse 17 of chapter 4. And we see the radical obedience of Jesus' disciples. Verse 17, it says, For that, From that time Jesus began to preach the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it says, As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So Jesus goes out, he displays radical obedience by being baptized, he displays radical obedience by being in submission to God and not displaying his authority. And then the first thing he does is he goes out and he wants to start bringing people into his kingdom. And notice who he calls. It's not the Pharisees, it's not the scribes, it's not the religious leaders. He goes out to the lake and calls a couple of fishermen. I want you to understand that our initiation into God's kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with how smart we are, with how well we know our Bible, with our previous standing with God, none of that. Jesus didn't go to people who already knew the Bible, who were already righteous. He went to the people who were probably the least likely candidates for being the first disciples. God does not expect you to clean up your life and then become a Christian. That's not how it works. God saves us while we are still sinners, and then he changes us. Fishermen. One of the interesting things about fishermen, I, I hear a misconception that people always talk about, he called the fishermen because they were, they were poor, and he's trying to show that, you know, Jesus goes for the, the lower class, the poor, the disenfranchised. And I, I think that's true, but I don't think that's what we're seeing here in Matthew. Because the fishermen in the first century, they made a pretty decent living. I mean, they weren't royalty or anything. They weren't living in mansions, but, you know, they made a decent living. They had enough money to, to own their own boat and hire some hired hands and, and work hard for their living. Think about, you know, if you go down to BNSF and you, and you want to get a job there at the railroad, you're going to start off, what, 24, 26 bucks an hour? That's nothing to sneeze at. 26 bucks an hour in Alliance, Nebraska is going to allow you to live a pretty comfortable life. But the big downside to that comfortable life that they lived is it was hard work. 
Think about it. When you and I think of fishing, we're going to go out to the lake and grab our ugly stick and put a lure on there. And, <sighs> this is the life. That's not what fishing was like for them. They were net fishermen. This is, here, let me show you a picture here. This is, uh, this is what it would look like. So you would have, this is one of the ways they would catch fish. So you'd have, on the left here, you've got the fishermen on the shore and the boat, the little boat symbol here. They go out and they're going to sail out and they find the spot where they want to catch some fish. And when they do, they start releasing the net and they swim parallel to the shore. And then they, they're going to intertwine the fish and let that net sink down to the bottom. And then they're going to start rowing back to shore. And then you've got about, you know, 10 to 12 people with big, heavy ropes, with big hauls of fish. And they're just lugging that thing in. I mean, this is hard work. They're dragging that net in. Think about, though, when that net's dragging across the bottom of the lake, sometimes it gets caught. It gets tangled, caught on rocks. You're going to have to send somebody out there to dive under the water 12, 15 feet deep and untangle those nets and drag those fish in. That's hard work. So when Jesus says to his disciples in verse 19, follow me and I will turn you into fishers of people. I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets immediately and followed them. Y'all preaching the gospel, being a fisher of men, being a fisher of people, is not a passive activity. It's not sitting on the shoreline and casting a line and waiting for somebody to come to you and ask you about Jesus. No, you've got to get your nets, you've got to go out there, and you've got to go after them. It requires us to go out and seek after people. Long hours. Hard work, sometimes very little results. Sometimes you've got to dive down deep with people and get dirty. And so I think Jesus specifically wanted fishermen because he knew that they had the work ethic to display the kind of radical obedience it takes to bring people into the kingdom of God. Side note, will somebody um, either go down and text our kids and bring them back up? Matthew 3 and 4 gives us our first glimpse of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. From that time, Jesus began to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think the point Jesus is trying to get across to us here is that he wants us to be radically obedient, not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. He wants us to go above and beyond, and he does that by showing us what it means to be radically obedient. Have you ever worked a job where you've had a boss who will ask you to do something, come in on Saturday, and you show up to work, and guess who's not there? The boss ain't there, is he? He's at home. He's at a picnic with his family. He's on a road trip, and you're there on a Saturday putting in the hours. Are you going to respect that boss? I'm not. Jesus is the kind of king who not only expects us 
to put in the hours and to be obedient, but he shows us how to do it. He's right there with us. He shows us that living a life of radical obedience means humbly rejecting authority, means producing fruit worthy of repentance. Living not by our standards, not by the standards of the world, but by the standards of the king. I think we as Christians can can really take Jesus' example here. That's going to be a theme as we go through Matthew in the coming weeks. How do you get into the kingdom? How do you stay in the kingdom? What does it look like to be a part of God's kingdom? And part of that is just being like the king. If you haven't made a commitment to follow Christ, if you haven't made a commitment to make him your king, your Lord, the first step is radical obedience and following him. Will you pray with me? Father God, I I just ask that you would be with each and every one of us, that you would help us to be radically obedient, that you would help us to do the right thing even when no one's watching, that you would ask us to live like Christ because you have given us the type of king who gets down and gets dirty. And we ask that you would help us to follow that example. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, precious name. And the church said, amen.